So I had you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's read the passage, and then I will describe what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. If you were with us in adult Sunday school, I went into this a little bit, and you can find that uh, where, I'll discuss it a little, where I discussed it a little more fully. You could find that on our website if you would like that. For those of you visiting with us, and we do have a few visitors, let me introduce myself. I forgot to do that. My name is Greg, and I serve here as the senior pastor, and uh, it's a privilege to open up the Word of God to you this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, down through the end of the chapter in verse 33. Paul begins this way, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, give us grace for this hour. Give us grace to understand uh, what you've written to us on the all-important subject of Christian marriage. And I pray that you would empower us to understand Paul's mind and give us a supernatural grace to come underneath of it for your glory. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said before, if you're visiting with us, I do apologize in some senses. You have sort of stepped onto a treadmill that's already running at running speed, Um, In some senses, I don't apologize because in God's providence, his role in your life bringing you here today, you've landed here today when we happen to be studying this. And this is a a passage that's been sort of months in the making. We've been studying through this book of Ephesians. It's a letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote, in the first century, and he was writing it to Christians living in the town of Ephesus, which was much like our modern-day Los Angeles. The Apostle Paul has been telling us what our lives should look like as spirit-filled people. And now that he's established sort of the general rule, be filled with the Spirit, he moves on to showing what spirit-filling looks like as it extends to our relationships. He's going to talk about uh, husbands and wives and children, employers and servants and so forth. And he's going to fill out what the Christian version of each of these relationships looks like. Now, as we discussed in adult Sunday school this morning, we've encountered Paul's teaching on spirit-filled marriage. 
What does it look like when husbands and wives are are filled with the Spirit and begin to relate to each other? And so today we begin Paul's instruction for Christian families. Now, I have a few caveats I want to point out here very quickly. We're going to focus on the word Christian, okay? This is a Christian ideal. We're talking about Christian marriage, the phenomenon of Christian marriage. There are all sorts of other marriage across our world, and those are outside of our focus today, and will be as we move forward. These are words written to Christians by a Christian so that the Christian meaning of marriage can play itself out. The second thing that I want to point out is that through the years, um, I've developed a little pre-marriage counseling curriculum. I talked about that in adult Sunday school. When I was a young pastor, I had never done pre-marriage counseling before, and then a couple came and asked for pre-marriage counseling, and so I had to sort of invent it on the fly, and that was an intimidating prospect. Well, through the years, using these verses, we've sort of settled in on a curriculum, and we're going to follow that. The reason we're going to follow that is whenever I lead a couple through this material, my own marriage flourishes. It's, it's wonderful. It, it blossoms. And so I'm hoping that that will be the same for our people as we examine these verses. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to sort of meld that counseling time with traditional preaching. It's, this isn't going to sound like my usual preaching uh, because it's not exactly. We're going to kind of bring these two things together so that hopefully they'll go really well. Well, without further ado, let's jump into the material and move forward on Paul's instruction to the family. Now, the first slide, I have a definition of Christian marriage. Before you put that up, Daniel, don't, did you put it up yet? Don't do it yet, okay? Don't do it. Okay? I want you to think, how would you define Christian marriage? If I asked you to sit down and hammer out some words that would define it, how would you define it? What components would you put into it? Is it a a thing that just makes us happy? Is it a thing that just brings us companionship? Is it something just for the rearing of children? Is it to make up for our flaws or our failings or our deficiencies. Well, the best place to turn, of course, for a definition of marriage is the Bible. And we can sort of piece together several portions of Scripture to make a really good working definition. And so I'd invite you to write this definition down because we're going to use it as we move forward here. And we're going to kind of deconstruct the different parts of it as most of it is taken from the passage that we just read today. So go ahead and put that on the screen, Daniel. Here's our definition of Christian marriage. Now, I didn't put the verse references in there, but I could just as easily supply those if you would like. Here it is. Christian marriage is an act of divine creation whereby God unifies a man and a woman to complete his image in them as they model the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and their actions and affections. Okay, I'll read that again. Christian marriage is an act of divine creation. When does that act of divine creation take place? 
when the representative of God says, I now pronounce you man and wife. That's when God takes two people and makes them one. Christian marriage is an act of divine creation whereby God unifies a man and a woman to complete his image in them. We discussed that in adult Sunday school. Men are given the image of God. Women are given the image of God. We each bear the image of God, but we do so incompletely. And when God brings a man and a woman together in marriage, together as a unified one, they profoundly picture the image of God as the two are brought to one. To complete his image in them as they model the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and their actions and affections. Okay? Our marriages are to be a model, a picture for other people to look on and say, oh, that is what God had in mind when he redeemed man for himself. Okay? So let's sort of begin to work out this definition a little bit here. The first point we have for today, other than the definition, is this, that marriage is a divine act. Remember, we said that marriage is an act of divine creation. So let me show this to you, that marriage is a divine act. We read right here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30. It says for, I'm I'm sorry, in verse uh, 32, this mystery is profound. Ah, 31. I said 30, then 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is, of course, a quotation from Genesis chapter 2, 24, and we looked at that quotation in Sunday school this morning. Now I will be done referring to Sunday school, and we're going to move on to new material. Jesus also quotes this passage of Scripture. I'd like you to turn there with me. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. It's the first book of the New Testament. And this is where Jesus also quotes this passage. Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. The Pharisees have come to Jesus, and they are trying to trap him. And they say to him, is it okay for a person to divorce and remarry for any reason? And Jesus says in verse 5, he quotes this verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God, therefore, has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus draws three conclusions from this divine creation. When you were married, God made you one. And Jesus says, I want you to know three things about that. When God brought you together to make you one, you're now no longer two, but one. We don't think in terms of life anymore as Greg or Danielle, but Greg Danielle. We are always making decisions, considering things in light of the other. It's a union. It's an indissoluble union. A union that when brought together, you end up losing your identity in the person that comes alongside with you. 
number two that Jesus draws, the second conclusion that Jesus draws from this, it is that it's, it's God who does the joining. It's God who does it. For all the work that we do in searching for a spouse and so forth, Jesus wants us to know that it's God who does the pairing ultimately. He says, therefore, that divorce, this is his third conclusion, divorce should be rare and should be rare among God's people. He lists Matthew, he lists um, uh, sexual immorality here in chapter 19, verse 9, and other passages, passages of Scripture, namely 1 Corinthians 7 or Exodus 21, um, neglect or abandonment or abuse are other valid reasons for divorce, but among God's people, that should be rare. Because, Jesus says, marriage is a divine act that makes two people into one. God does the joining. Okay, that's what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 5. God does the joining. It's very important for us to remember and will be really important as we begin making applications. Let's move on to our second point. Number two, marriage is a gospel picture. So marriage is a divine creation, and then he says right here that marriage is a gospel picture. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, before we get too far afield, we need to know what Paul means by the word mystery, okay? When, we, when he uses the word mystery, he doesn't mean mystery as in the sense of an unknown. Um, we can't know it. It's actually quite the opposite. Think of a mystery as in like a Sherlock Holmes novel. It's a mystery until the very end when it's all revealed by the great detective Sherlock Holmes. And so what Paul is saying here is all throughout Scripture history, it was yet to be revealed what marriage was really about. But when we come to the New Testament, Paul says, we find out what marriage really is. And marriage, he says, now revealed, now understood, now so that we can get it, is a picture of the gospel. God indissolubly brings two people who are different, as different can be. He brings them together and unifies them. So that in this union, they can picture the gospel. Well, you say, but Pastor Greg, it doesn't say the gospel right here. It says Christ in the church. Well, Christ in the church is, is the gospel. I'd like to point that out to you. I've got a few verses up here that uh, I'd like you to see. That Christ redeems the church in chapter 1, verse 7. He redeems us who are sinners, who were fallen and Away from him, chapter 2, verse 1. And he redeems us, according to chapter 5, verse 25, by the sacrifice of his son. Now he blesses the church with every spiritual blessing. He fills her with his presence. He displays his grace through her in the heavenly places and receives glory from her forevermore. The church is the glory of Christ. So here, here, the Apostle Paul begins to unfold what it is that our relationships are supposed to picture. 
the way that we relate wife and husband and husband to wife is to be a living display of redemption and blessing and partnership and presence. Presence. It's to... It's, it's a picture of garnering your reputation and glory from the advancement of your spouse. A flourishing Christian wife is the crown of her husband. A husband with a strong reputation is the joy of his wife. Such union are they in that they experience difficulties and blessings together to where they shake when the other is shaken. Wives, when your husband is cut, do you bleed? Husbands, are you adorning your wife relationally such that she would say, oh, my husband is such a blessing and joy in his presence to me. We redeem each other with forgiveness and grace. Of course I don't meet these husbandly ideals. But my wife is so gracious as to overlook them. And I, I kid you not, if I were to pin her down and say, honey, you have to tell me something that's wrong with me. Now, I grant you, she could come up with a list of things that are wrong with me that would stretch from the pulpit all the way to my house. I can't get her to say any of them. Unless she says, no, it's fine, it's all right, it's fine. Then I know I've done something and I'm probably going to hear it, okay? You come in, she's quiet. Hey, honey, how are you? I'm fine. Uh-oh. <laughs> I have done something that is decidedly not fine. No. We, this relationship is a walking, talking, living display of the gospel and blessing and partnership and glory not derived from what I do, and glory not derived from what my wife does. She doesn't derive her own glory. I derive glory from her advancement and vice versa. As that's the relationship that's typified in Christ and the church. So how do you get there? How do you begin to portray the gospel? How do you begin to portray redemption and blessing and partnership and union? How, how do you do that? Well, that brings us to our third point. Marriage as a shared pattern. Marriage as a shared pattern. Okay? Now, everybody, I want you to ignore for a moment the command that's given to each of you. Actually, believe it or not, ladies are not given a command in this verse. I'll explain that in a moment. 
I want you to ignore the command for just a moment, and I want you to look at the example. I want you to look at the pattern. Look at verse 22, okay? Look at verse 22. It says, wives, I'm going to give you a literal translation of this verse. Literally, in Greek, there is no verb. In fact, some of you who have a New American Standard Bible will see the word should submit, and it's italicized, which is trying to show you that there's no verb here. Literally, it reads, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. Now, this is an obvious observation, but it is profound. If I were to ask most Christian women what their pattern is to be in the way they relate to their husbands, they would say, the church, as Christ is to the church. But that is not what it says. It says, to the Lord. The pattern is the Lord. Now we see right here in verse 25, let's go there. It says chapter 5, verse 25, husbands. Again, I want you to kind of ignore the command for just a moment. We'll get to those in coming weeks. Wives, or sorry, husbands, love your wives as Christ. As Christ loves the church. Okay, so again, obvious observation, but a profound result. Husbands, who are you to look to as your pattern? Husbands, who are you to look to as your pattern? Christ. Ladies, who are you to look to as your pattern? Who? The Lord. Christ. So what do we have? We have two people looking at the same person. Two people looking at the same person as the pattern that they use to relate interpersonally. Now again, most of the time, when we start talking marriage, we look to other people for guidance. If our parents had a great marriage, that's awesome, and if you can use that as a pattern, do so insofar as they did it to the Lord. Whatever you do, don't, don't take your cues from the television. That is not going to lead to your happiness. <laughs> Don't look to books or to novels. Don't even look to the church, ladies. Look to Christ. Look at Christ. Look and see how he arranged his life according to what God wanted. Look and see how Christ served, how Christ spoke, how Christ lived out his life, walked his life. 
And that's your pattern, men as well. We look and see how Christ loved and sacrificed and gave and taught. In Christian marriage, both wives and husbands are looking chiefly to Christ for how to act. We both look chiefly to Christ for how to act. Now, I want to make two observations and applications, and I know we're going to, I'm just preparing you a little ahead of time. We're going to settle in on these just a little bit, okay? So, this is the last slide, but we might be here for a few minutes, okay? Just so you're prepared emotionally, okay? Observations and applications. Number one, God declares us to be one in marriage just as he declares us to be one with Christ. Decisively, graciously, and irrevocably. Okay, let's, let's back up a little bit. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. What is the gospel? You were a sinner, Christ died for you, you put your faith in the gospel, and God saves you. And he does so when he declares you to be righteous. You are justified in God's sight. You are saved. And that's how God saves. That's how God redeems. And God declares you to be one in just the same way. He declares this. It's his act. It's his divine act. And he does it graciously. He does it decisively. And he does it irrevocably. Now, why did I choose those three words, decisively and graciously and irrevocably? Because God has declared you to be one, and he's done so without any debate. He's done so without any conditions. And he's done so in a moment without, without going back. Okay. He's been so decisive in this declaration that, in other words, after you've been married, after you've been married, it's done, you're one, and you in all normal circumstances, should not be on the fence trying to decide if you're going to stick around with this person. God has, as we are responding to God, we are behaving as God has declared. Entertaining divorce in our minds, entertaining Separation in our minds is not the way that we want God thinking about our justification. It's not the way that we want God thinking about our reconciliation or our redemption. We want that to have been settled. And so when we come to the altar and moving forward in our marriage, that is settled, and that's it, and we're moving forward. And there's really no looking back, because we don't want God looking back. As God has declared us to be righteous and settled it decisively, so we should move forward decisively in our own marriages. Secondly, God declares us to be one with Christ in a gracious way. Graciously. Okay. We are one and we're unified regardless of the performance of our spouse. In other words, um, husbands, aren't you glad that your wife 
doesn't sit around and say, well, if my husband picks up his socks today and earns the right, models what it means to be a good husband, then yes, I'll be unified with him today. Because that's, how, that's not how God, that's not how you want God thinking of your justification, do you? You don't want God in heaven saying this, saying, you know, um, since they failed so miserably, I'm going to rethink my relationship with them. You don't want God doing that at all. And so when we come to our relationships, husband-wife, we're doing so with this gracious, we're not expecting the other person to earn and continually earn that status. Does that make sense? We don't want them to have to continually earn that. It just is. They are. And off we go moving forward. I remember when we'd been married, um, oh, just a short time. I, I, I think of marriage as in the places we've lived. And the first place we lived was this tiny little apartment on campus. And um, it was two dorm rooms that they put a door between. And so we had two very small spaces to live in. But because I had been living in one dorm room, I doubled my size, and I felt like I was a king in my own castle. Well, Danielle had forgotten to do something, and it was an honest mistake. And She asked me, she said, are you, are you disappointed in me? And like a fool, I said, a little. And she cried. And that was the first time I got a sense of how gracious my interaction needed to be so as not to wound or hurt, but to edify and encourage and build up. You know, there's times when I've disappointed the Lord. He'll come to me and knock on the door of my heart with the passage from his word. But I never get the sense that Jesus has his head down and his brow furrowed and his lips pursed and he's shaking his head in disappointment at me. No, it... We're told in Romans 5, verse 1, that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that there is now therefore no condemnation between God and us. And so this marriage is a constant passing along of the grace that Christ bestowed upon us when he declared us to be righteous. Marriage is not a place to vent frustration or wishes that you had met some standard, that your spouse had met some standard, because that's not how Christ talks to us. God unites us 
irrevocably. Again, Jesus says, what God has brought together, let not man separate. Now, like I've said before, there are some exceptions. There are some really awful things that can happen in marriage that necessitate a separation. But for the most part, a marriage needs that irrevocable declaration of unity moving forward. Second observation and application. Christ is the head of a marriage just as he is ruler over all things. Okay? Christ is the head of the marriage just as he is the ruler of all things. Therefore, Christian spouses must always be comfortable with second place. Okay? Not just comfortable with it, but encouraging it. Wives, you must know that you will that you should always take second place to Jesus in the heart of your husband. And husbands, you should always know that Jesus will always take or should always take first place in the heart of your wife. There are two kinds of people that you can be married to in this way. You can be married to zealots who zealously pursue the Lord Jesus Christ first place, or you can be married to a hypocrite. Now, I don't think you want that second choice. We have to encourage that sort of devotion. We have to push our spouses into the primary relationship that Jesus should have, even if that means a little less time with us, because we are always second. Husbands, we should never huff and puff when our wives ask us to watch the kids so they can go to ladies' Bible study. Because Christ must have first place in her heart. Wives, when your husband wants to give some of his time to the Lord, allow him to make that happen. Because again, Christ should always have first place in your husband's heart. Remember, Wives are looking to Christ just as husbands are looking to Christ. And it's in the pursuit of him chiefly that we find our right position. Now, marriages begin to encounter trouble when spouses tolerate the disruption of that order. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? They sold a parcel of property together, and then they got together and they said, let's, let's tell everybody we sold it, I don't know how much it was for, but $100,000, and we're giving all the $100,000 to the church. And 
It cost them their lives, that lie. But they conspired ahead of time to disrupt the order of Christ being on the throne of their hearts. And when we begin to encourage into our spouse something other than Christ is first place for our own benefit, that's when the marriage begins to get off kilter and get into trouble. It loses its moorings. We ought always to encourage one another to keep Christ in that first and primary position. All right. Well, I hope this has been helpful for you. Um, After I pray, um, Nathan has a final song. I'm going to head to the back, and um, I would love to meet you at the door. I'd love to say hello, and I would love to answer any further questions that you might have. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us grace, give us mercy, help us to understand your role in our relationships. And um, I pray that we would all put Christ first in our marriage. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.